The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 21st chapter. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question, if you tell me the answer. Then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. The first reading for today from Paul's letter to the Philippians stands out as the earliest known profession of faith in Christ Jesus. Perhaps some of you recognize it as the Christ hymn, which in part reads like this. Though he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul continues, therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scholars agree that these poetic words about our Lord were sung in the early Christian church and they were used as an aid to teach about Jesus. The second reading from the Gospel of Matthew recounts an event that took place on the day after Palm Sunday when the religious leaders confronted Jesus in the temple wanting to know by what authority he was teaching and preaching. Jesus responded first with a parable about two sons, and then he concluded with these scathing words. 
Truly I tell you, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. So, in our two readings assigned for today, we have, on the one hand, what is widely recognized as the most beautiful and eloquent description of Jesus Christ recorded anywhere in Scripture. And on the other hand, we have what very well may be the most difficult-to-swallow words of our Lord recorded anywhere in Scripture. In Philippians, Paul shows Jesus as the supreme example of humility, and then he calls us to be of the same mind, to regard others as better than ourselves, and to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Put simply, Paul calls us to be humble. And Matthew, well, he shows us exactly how challenging it is to accept and internalize just such a call. The barriers to genuine humility are many, not the least of which is fueled by the very hard-to-hear words of Jesus, which suggest that others will enter the kingdom before us. And just to be clear, those others are not just any others, but rather, they are the ones that we would place beneath ourselves, the ones that we look down upon, the ones we compare ourselves to with a certain assurance of superiority. These are the ones of whom we might say, just like the Pharisee who stood by himself and prayed aloud, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, like the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's difficult to accept that those we deem less than will actually come before us in the kingdom of God, or quite frankly, it's difficult to accept that they will have a place in the kingdom at all. Another barrier to the practice of humility is its negative connotation. Before Jesus, humility was rarely used in any other way than in a pejorative sense, meaning insignificant, servile, or lowly. And most certainly, it was not considered to be a virtue for which one might strive. Although Jesus turned that on its head, placing humility in a very different light, still today, we have a difficult time with humility, seeing it as antithetical to getting ahead, to strong and confident leadership, and to the achievement of success. One more barrier to the practice of humility worth naming is what author Richard Foster identified in his book, Learning Humility, where he chronicled his year-long search for humility. He wrote, writing on this particular topic, while knowing that others might someday read it, carries with it an inherent danger, perhaps an inherent contradiction. Or put another way, an author wrote this, humility 
is an elusive virtue. The more we pursue it, and the more we seem to acquire it, the more we take pride in our accomplishment, and then we find ourselves right back at square one. Nevertheless, we are called into a posture of humility. And because that is so, it's important for us to understand not only what it is, but also to recognize what it does that makes it such an important Christian virtue. So first, what it is. Some define humility as thinking of yourself less, others as a low view of one's own important, and still others as having a realistic picture of yourself, no better than you are, but also no worse. The definition that I like best recognizes humility as a relational term, defined as one's posture in relationship to God and in relationship with others. Let me say that again. Humility is a relational term defined as one's posture in relationship to God and in relationship with others. So you see, it's not about self-deprecation or lack of confidence or weakness or low self-worth. Rather, as shown by the example of our Lord, which is written about so beautifully by Paul in our reading today, it is first and foremost an act of love which makes our call to be humble very good news. And what humility does is also good news. As a relational term, humility frees us from those things that hold us back from being who God made us to be, and it frees us for those things which further God's kingdom. It frees us from having always to be right, to speak up, to know it all. It frees us from needing to impress, to prove ourselves, to call attention to our own accomplishments and successes. It frees us from jealousy and envy, which come as a result of endless comparison and measuring our worth against others and ordering ourselves in a line with others. And at the very same time, humility frees us for something far greater and more grand than anything we could have imagined. It frees us to see others, not as rivals or competitors, but rather as gifts from God brought into our lives. It frees us to be genuinely happy for others and their accomplishments. It frees us to learn from those who are very different from ourselves, to be curious about their worldview, and to discover the new truths from someone else's life experience. It frees us then to attend to the needs of others, to offer help, support, compassion without judgment, and to work for justice for those who live on the margins. And it frees us to rest in God's care as one who is beloved and valued and deemed worthy, not for what you do or contribute or accomplish, but rather for who you are and to whom you belong. Humility 
frees us from all of those things which hold us back in relationship with others, which hold us back from generosity and compassion and love, and it frees us for all of the goodness that God has promised and planned and given to you in community with others. In conclusion, Foster suggests in his book, humility has the very unique ability to enlarge your soul. And having an enlarged soul means that you are free to find people to serve and to care for, to notice, to see those who are put in your path, and you can care for them in small ways and in large ways whenever and wherever possible. And this happens. This happens only because, as Paul wrote in Philippians, God and God alone is at work in your heart and in your mind and in your imagination, increasing your awareness of the overwhelming preciousness of every single person, no matter how different they are from you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your model of humility, and we ask that you would help us to become of the same mind, to regard others as better than ourselves, and to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And all this for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.